You know, this, this time of year can fill us with a sense of nostalgia. Um, and sometimes, depending on kind of where you are in life, that can uh, crumble pretty quickly. I was meeting with a young man not too long ago who um, I think it was given this time of year he came to see me and was pretty down. And I asked him, well, what's wrong? And he said, I'm never going to get married. And I said, well, I'm going to tell you what I've told other young men have told me before. I said, you know, even with you, my God is able to do anything. He's able to do anything. He's able to find even you a spouse. It took me back to um, about a year ago and a conversation I had with another young man who said the same type thing. And this year I find out that he's engaged to be married and is excited and uh, on on his way, and he's just rejoicing over what the Lord has done and the circumstances when he brought this young lady into his life. And as as I've been thinking about it, Christmas, the story of Christmas, this time of year when we pause and we remember Christ coming to the earth, is really a a time that we pause and we think and we celebrate the reality. Of what God can do. Maybe more accurately, what God has done by sending Christ in the flesh, God become flesh, dwelt among us, and has saved us from our sins, but also the reality of what He is going to do, that Christ will return again. And so as we stop, as we slow, especially during this next week, to consider Christmas. We're stopping to consider that God is able, that we're seeing what God has done and what he can do. And it is more than any of us could ever imagine. Now, a couple of weeks ago, as Gary was preaching, he he touched on he kicked off our our Advent, our Christmas time uh, messages, and he touched on uh, a, a, an account in the Gospel of Luke of. Zacharias and Elizabeth. And, and many of you know this story, right? That you have Zacharias and Elizabeth and they're old and they don't have any children and there's really no hope for children. They were beyond childbearing years. And one day, Zacharias gets this really wild news. If you turn back with me uh, in Luke chapter 1, and let's just, just revisit real quickly, verses 12 through 17, it says, The angel of the Lord appeared to Zacharias, and then in verse 12, Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel, and fear gripped him. But the angel of the Lord said to him, Don't be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you'll give him the name John. You will have great joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He'll drink no wine or liquor. He'll be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. I think this is probably part of what blew him away because he knew the implications of this. He will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous 
so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zacharias was a priest. And for 400 years, for 400 years, God had been silent. The people of Israel had been in rebellion. They were under the captivity of Roman powers. And and we saw, we see in the last book that's put in the Old Testament, in the order in which we read it, Malachi, that God was silent. God shut his mouth. And here, that silence is broken to this old priest who has an old wife, and he says, you're going to have a son. No wonder we get Zacharias' response. He said to the angel, how will I know this for certain? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God. I've been sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. And what I'm going to say to us this morning is what I believe that God was doing here through this through his angel Gabriel. And I have to watch my language here because I want to say. The two words that parents don't want me to say, so I'm going to change it, be silent. And watch what I can do. Shut your mouth. And watch what I can do. And I don't know if we've ever thought, I've I been thinking through this over the past couple weeks. How frustrating do you think it was for Zacharias? Nine months that he couldn't speak. Even just the fact that he had seen an angel, Gabriel, and he couldn't tell anybody. He was silent. Let's imagine a little further. He received this prophecy, this word from this angel. He had doubted. But can you imagine what happened when the first signs were appearing that Elizabeth truly was pregnant? And that maybe she was telling him of the changes that were happening and that she was like, it's, it's real, it's happening. And he couldn't talk. Or maybe the first time that Elizabeth took his hand and put it on her stomach. And John kicked for the first time. And here this old priest. Was seeing and realizing that God's word was true. That this miracle was true. And that this boy in this old woman's tummy was going to be the prophet, the forerunner of the Messiah. And he couldn't say anything. And maybe he wasn't in the room when Mary came and that we studied last week and Mary came and John jumped and the two of them exclaimed, but I'm sure he heard about it. And I'm sure that his faith was growing and he probably just wanted to burst with excitement and he was silent because he couldn't talk. How frustrating do you think this had to be? 
J.C. Ryle, in talking about this, says this. Let us take heed that affliction does us good as it did to Zacharias. Sanctified afflictions are spiritual promotions. I like that. The sorrow that humbles us and drives us nearer to God is a blessing and a downright gain. No case is more hopeless than that of a man who in time of affliction turns his back on God. And I think what we see and we're going to see in the life of Zacharias is that he didn't turn his back on God. That in this spiritual affliction that he was drawn into God and as he was silent, he was sitting and watching and taking in all that God was doing. And I just want to pause for a moment and comfort us and to let us know that in times of spiritual hardships or times of hardships in our life, don't underestimate the reality that God may be placing us in positions where we are silent and we ha- all we can do is sit and watch God show up. What we learn from these times. We see him for who he is. We see that he draws near to those who are brokenhearted. We see that he fulfills his promises and we see that we can trust him. Can you imagine the anticipation and the buildup? I mean, he, he had to just be ready to burst. It had to be so frustrating. And we see that his faith is growing. His boldness, we're going to see, grew. We're going to see that he trusted God. No more doubting. No more turning back. He's decided to follow God. You know, one, I just have to, a brief side note. That old hymn, I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back. It's the worst melody line for a song like that. It's so depressing, right? And I, as, I'm, as, I'm, as I'm studying for this and that, the, those lyrics keep kind of pouring forth in my head, I'm like, man, we got to do better than that. Lyric, uh, not lyrically, but mm. so it should be exciting musically. Thank you, Whit. He wasn't going to mess this up. He wasn't going to mess this up. Let's look at what happened in in the naming of his son. Now time had come for Elizabeth to give birth, and she gave birth to a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had displayed His great mercy towards her, and they were rejoicing with her. And it happened that on the eighth day, when he came to circumcise the child, they were going to call him Zacharias after his father. Now, who's they? Isn't it weird that the neighbors just decided, hey, we're going to name this kid for you? Maybe because Zacharias was mute and couldn't talk that they said, okay, hey, we'll, we'll do this for you. And it would have even been kind of weird to name him after his father. In that day and age, that didn't happen because it would be like Zacharias bar Zacharias. But this was the assumption of this is what would be his name. That he would get a family name. And what I want you to see from the eighth day that this young baby was born, we see this family going against the wave of culture. 
The wave of culture would have been to name him a family name. And notice, notice that instead of this, his family does something different. Because he was no ordinary child. This child was God's child and that God had a name for him. And you just have to think that this naming this child John was going to stand out. And this was a theme, wasn't it? Standing out versus the culture. I mean, we see at the end of the passage that was read today that John, as he got older, went out to the wilderness. That's kind of odd. And he preached a message of repentance. Remember, as the religious leaders come, he kind of puts his finger in their face. That's kind of odd. And do you remember how he died? The way he died is going against the queen and her wishes. And the king took his head off because he was countercultural. God's man. And you may say, well, Lewis, how is naming him this countercultural? It's really a small thing. Have you ever thought about it this way? What if the prophecies had not come true? He would be a marked man. Oh yeah, the little prophet boy John. I don't know what his parents were thinking. We didn't think there was anything special about that boy. But no, in this name, in naming him John, they were setting him apart. They were setting him apart. And Luke emphasizes this. There's a boldness. Notice in verse 60. But his mother answered and said, No, indeed, but he shall be called John. And, and, and notice then they didn't, they didn't stop there. They thought, oh, you know, this woman is crazy. And they said to her, There's no one among your relatives who's called by that name. And they made signs to his father as to what they wanted him to call him. And he asked for a tablet and he wrote as follows. His name is John. And notice what the text says. They were all what? Astonished. They were making a mark. They were following God. They were doing what God had asked them to do. And you may say, well, Lewis, what's in a name? Well, a lot's in a name. I am Lewis Wilburn Belva III. Don't you dare laugh at my middle name. In fact, we were going to name William. I was going to name William Louis Wilburn Belva IV, but my wife wanted to spare him of, as she says it, Wilburn. <laughs> Nobody else but my wife has said that to me. <laughs> Many of you know when we adopted our sweet little girl Flannery, uh, we got her when she was eight days old. We adopted her a year and a half or so later, two years later, about this time. That was not the name that her birth parents gave her. And every one of her names is a family name. Flannery, Gail, Belva. Because the name was significant. We wanted her to have our name to signify that she was part of our family. 
And as they named this little boy John, they were signifying that this young little lad was the one that God had sent to prepare the way for his son. And it was significant. And in boldness, they stepped out and they trusted God. And notice what happens as this, as this faith was enacted, as Zacharias wrote on his tablet, he essentially was writing, I believe, I believe his name is John. And notice what happens at this moment. His mouth was open, his tongue was loosed, and he began to speak in praise to God. What a moment this must have been because fear came on all of those living around them and all these matters were being talked about in all of the hill country in Judea. That this celebration was so lively that all who heard about what had taken place kept them in mind saying, what then will this child turn out to be? Because the hand of the Lord was certainly upon him. What a celebration that must have been. And I want to jump ahead and to this song. Zechariah sings a song, makes this proclamation, this witness, kind of like we studied last week. But I want to jump ahead to a key part of this because I want you to see the words of praise that are coming forward from this man's mouth. And I want you to see the change in him. Starting in verse 74, to grant us that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, notice this, that we might serve him without fear. This fearful man that we saw nine months earlier is now making this bold proclamation where thousands of years we will be reading this bold proclamation and that what he is telling us is that when you see who God is and what he is able to do, that the result of that is that you serve him without fear and with joy and with gladness. When you hear verses like this, when I hear verses like this, one of the things I ask myself is, what is it that takes fear away? Now, there's the easy Sunday school answer, Jesus, God, prayer, the Bible. And we say yes to all of that. But, but I want to I dig down a little bit and say, what is it that takes fear away? All of you have been in this scenario, probably. Either you were the child or you were the parent or you've been with somebody else's children. Where maybe your child is scared to go up to their room because there's a monster under the bed. Or a monster in the closet. So what do you do? Tough it out, kid. No, you take the child by the hand. You walk him up the stairs. You turn on the light. You look under the closet. You look in the closet. You look under the bed. You comfort them and you say, hey, listen, there's no monster here. And I promise you, daddy will protect you. And you tell them these things. Or what about maybe the first day of school? And you're scared of those Big, mean, bad teachers. And they're so mean that you've got to take that little child into the room and say, look, it's okay. It's okay. Everything's all right. 
And so you may think, and I think this is partially true, we may think, well, the thing that eliminates fear is, is basing our fear. And I do think that's partially true. But I want you to notice in that example I gave that the way that we are able to face fear when we're a little child is when we are in the presence or holding the hand of someone we believe that can protect us. That is telling us the truth. That has the power over the monster or the big bad teacher in the classroom. You see, I think these nine months culminating in the birth of his son for Zacharias, that one of the ways he could describe those nine months is almost like this Job type moment. Not that he lost everything, but remember the proclamation of Job? Here's this priest, Zacharias. I think he could have said this. I had heard rumors about you. But now, now my eyes have seen you. And I repent. I submit. The only thing that can come out of me at this point is praise and trust. I think in this moment that he was just ready. Let's go. God, you and me and my family, let's do this. And we get this song. At the birth of your child, if you've had a child, what's the temptation? The temptation is just to focus on the child, right? Oh, you know, what will he look like? Who does he look like more? And I don't think as an infant you can tell. But there's all these wonderings and thinking about this child and will they be this great sports player or academic scholar or whatever. The, the, the temptation is to focus on the child. And one of the things that's interesting is that as Zacharias' mouth is open, there is no focus on the child. There's only at one point where he talks about his son, and I want you to hear what he says in verse 76. And I'm imagining he picks this child up and he says, And you, child, you will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give His people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of sins. That he's telling this young child, Your specialness is directly connected to you being a servant of the Messiah. And think about what God did. John, in the wilderness, when he's talking about Jesus, he says what? You must increase and I must decrease. Behold, here comes the one whose sandal I'm not even able to untie. When he's talking about the greatness of Jesus... John's significance is all about him making much of Jesus. And Zacharias knows this and he's bursting forth in song and he's singing this to his child. And oh, he is singing much more. He is singing much more. This song is just a wonderful, wonderful song. He starts out. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for all of his people. Notice he's talking, the, the tense here, 
He is talking as if he has already done it. This is the faith of this man, that he believes it. And it's true, God has already done it. And he is praising God for something that will happen in six months. God has done it. His Messiah is coming. The culmination, Zacharias knows this, the culmination of all of history is getting ready to take place. As a priest, as he studied and learned the Old Testament, as he learned the prophecies, what he was seeing and what he was proclaiming is, it's happening. Everything was pointing towards this time and God has done it. God is doing it. They are all coming true. Notice, listen here to verse 79 through 72. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, salvation from our enemies and from the hands of all who hate us to show mercy towards our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham, our father. And what I want you to see, what I want you to see is that this man is not just mentioning old dead people for the kicks of it. He was a priest. He knew the covenants that God had made. He knew the covenant that God had made with David. The covenant that God had made with David. David was a strong king whom God used to deliver his people and to establish a kingdom that there was peace in Israel because of David. And through David, God had promised there will be another king from the line of David. Except this king... His throne will be everlasting. He will be on the throne forever. He will usher in everlasting peace. Notice verse 70 and 71 again. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all those who hate us. God was doing it. Zacharias was sure. Not only did he mention David, but he He mentioned Abraham, verses 72 and 73. To show mercy towards our fathers, to remember his covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham, our father. God had made a covenant with Abraham. Do you remember in Genesis chapter 12? He told Abraham that through you, I will establish, I will make a great nation. I will bless you. Your name will be great. And all of the nations on earth will be blessed through you. And as this old priest for nine months was chewing on this news from this angel, he was recognizing what God was doing. He was bringing to fruition all that he had promised. All that he had promised. God is able. God is doing it. And that's not all. It's not all, is it? It's amazing. It's amazing. This old priest, I think through the Holy Spirit, saw 
that the new covenant was here. That God was doing something new. And I think we see it in this text. It's a new day. And this new covenant is going from raising up, saving Israel, establishing this kingdom forever, all the way from there to the church, which brings us into this fold. Look at this message in verse 77. This is amazing. To give His people the knowledge of salvation. How? By the forgiveness of their sins. Salvation is here by the forgiveness of your sins. This is John's proclamation in the wilderness that we see a couple of chapters later. Come, be baptized for the repentance of your sins. And then we get these wonderful words. Because of the tender mercy of God. Because of the tender mercy of God. We can't rush over that phrase, can we? When we read this text, we see that God is faithful. He keeps His word. He keeps His promises. He is able. He is strong. And brothers and sisters... Brothers and sisters, he is full of mercy, tender mercy. So much so that he came to a people who didn't deserve it. None of us deserve it. He sent his son to die. The tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise, the dawn from on high, will visit us. Salvation has come. So you may think to yourself, to whom has salvation come? I mean, were there some, were there some really good Israelites during this day that, you know, had been waiting patiently for the Lord and so salvation has kind of come to them because they've been kind of holding the fort down? Are there some guys that are really following the law really, really well? Is that to whom the salvation has come? The good news for us to shine upon those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death. To shine on those who are in trouble. We often say here, the only thing that we bring to salvation is our need of Him. Our good works don't do us any good. Our law keeping doesn't do us any good. Our family heritage doesn't do us any good. The only thing we bring is our need of Him. That God in His tender mercy has sent His Son to make a way. And what I want you to hear this morning, and some of you may need to hear this this morning, is God is able to save you. He has the power to save even you. Who may this morning be sitting there saying, but you don't know where I've been and you don't know what I've done. And that's the point. God made a way that Christ came and died on the cross and took on our sin. And is willing and able to give us redemption, forgiveness of sins, if you would just trust him today. 
He's able. I pray that you would take that message with you into your Christmas gatherings to be that light. And for all who have trusted him, there's a message for us here, isn't there? The message for us is that we serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. That we are a people who follow him and he will guide our feet into the way of peace. Will you trust him? Do you believe That he is able. Some of you may be when you consider the task that God has called us to, to be salt and light in this dark world. Some of you, if you were here yesterday and you hear stories of my father, who uh, one of the things that he told us, not in a bragging way, he was just talking about how to stay focused on uh, the things of the Lord, that the lady cutting his hair, I think he said it turned into a 45 minute discussion about Suffering and salvation. I don't know if he paid for that. He probably did. But some of us, when we hear things like that, we shrink back in fear. And you say, well, Lewis, you know, it says to serve him without fear, and I'm shrinking back in fear. And that's what we're celebrating this Christmas. Are you scared of the dark? He has come, Christ has come to shine the light upon those who sit in darkness. Just like that father who takes the child by the hand into the room and says, you don't have to fear the darkness anymore. The light is on. There are no monsters. I am able to protect you. Maybe this morning you're saying, well, you know, I. Well, it's just fear grips me, you know, I mean, I'm, you know, what could happen? I mean, you know, the, the worst thing that could happen is that you die. Christ has come and conquered death. Oh, death, where is your sting? You don't have to be scared of that anymore. I said, well, Lewis, you know, I mean, what if I have to suffer? What if people don't like me because of the message that I proclaim? And it, the word tells us. That he is with us in the midst of our suffering. That Christ has come and walked the path. He has sent his spirit to guide us. To guide our feet into the way of peace. And we so many times forget that he is able. He is trustworthy. He is merciful. And we allow ourselves to be gripped with fear and anxiety. Sit in the dark shaking. Brothers and sisters. The celebration of Christmas screams at us that we have nothing to fear. The celebration of Christmas screams at us that we serve a God who is so powerful. That he took on flesh and made possible Redemption. Will you believe and will you truly live the life that he has called you? 
Will you trust in the plan and the purpose that he has for you? Will you serve him without fear? This is the result of the Christmas message. That God has done it. Will you trust and will you believe? Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Sometimes these songs that we sing during this time of year. Don't land on us like they should. God, I pray that as we consider, as we slow, as life gets a little slower, as work slows down, as kids are out of school, God, I pray that we would stop and just be amazed at what you've done. And it would just give us great courage to know what you've done and to trust what you are doing. Not only in our lives, but in fulfilling your promise to bring your kingdom fully to this world. God, I pray that we would see your power. See your trustworthiness. See your mercy. And that we, like this old priest, or the young virgin that we studied about last week, may sing a song from the depth of our being of praise to you. God, may it be this Christmas season. It's in your name we pray. Amen.